humor in a jocular vein, I guess that would be J-O-C-K dash U-L-A-R is our subject today. Welcome to Sports Lit. I am Nate Sager. And I'm Neil Acharya. Our guest today possesses a wit as sharp as a pair of skates. Sean McKindo is joining Neil and me to discuss the down goes brown history of the NHL, the world's most beautiful sport, the world's most ridiculous league, which was recently released by Random House Canada. As the title indicates, you probably know Sean Moore from his gnome de puck, Down Goes Brown, but he, he went legit some time ago. <laughs> Sean fills a niche in the hockey world's chattering class as a sort of satirist in chief using humor to uh, sort of as a framing device for for his insights uh, that can go around for days maybe you know quoting lines from some of the you know digital shorts he collaborated on with uh, blog a solving many years ago you know you know mock nhl on nbc promos for canadian teams that never get on u.s national tv the montreal canadians have a rich and glorious history which they remind you of with a long ceremony before every game I could go on for hours with this. Sean's new book um, sort of actually sort of ties into the text created by two of our recent guests on Sportslet, Dan Robson, her most recent one prior to this, and David Schultz. Uh, you know, Dan Robson was on to talk about his Johnny Bauer biography a little while back. David Schultz joined us to talk about Hockey Fight in Canada, which was about Rogers Sportsnet resting away the uh, NHL rights in Canada. Uh, I think... You know, a lot of people in sports, they tend to sort of just go along with the notion, okay, the league knows best. They're, you know, they, there was a foresight and a vision with us. And, well, Sean's writing always sort of points out that, no, really, it's sometimes it's the cultural blind spots in, in the league that have more of an effect on the, the shape of the league. And hockey it can sometimes just be all capped because tradition. You know, why was Johnny Bauer a minor league goalie till he was 34 years old? Well, NHL teams thought you should only have one full-time goalie on, on the roster, and they thought there should only be six teams, none of them west of Chicago. It's because tradition, you know? <laughs> and, you know, as David Schultz explained, Hockey Night Canada got this, or Sportsnet, got this huge backlash when they made, you know, changes to how the hockey was presented. Because tradition. So, you know, you have Sean, someone such as Sean who can sort of, you know, make light of these things and, and sometimes make us, you know, question our working assumptions and it's a, a you know a valuable i think role really because you know anything that people take seriously is big enough to you know be made fun of and and i think that this book you know 272 fast-paced pages that take you through the history of the nhl from its you know humble beginnings to you know the present day and what looks ahead of the future i think it worked uh, very effectively and if you've been following his work since his days with a blog spot page through to sportsnet and the athletic and the guardian and his first in his first book i think you'll you'll be pleased by what you find in the contents of the down goes brown history of the nhl neil yeah what i liked particularly is that sean approached this topic the history of the nhl which has been covered at length from an outside perspective, and that probably ties into what you were talking about with his roots coming through the non-traditional way of entering media, which is now becoming increasingly the traditional way, which is starting a blog. And and then having the freedom to examine whatever he wants to in whatever way, and obviously with a lot of intelligence and humor. And in this case, as mentioned, it's a subject that's been covered. I mean, I don't know how many books I've read on the history of the league, the history of the original six, the history of a particular original six team. He covers the entire league here and then also looks at the future. What I particularly liked about this book was I learned a lot 
and especially as you so eloquently described about how absurd the league has been since its formation and even even before its formation in 1917. And I, like Sean, like the underlying nuggets in the history of the league. For example, I had no idea there was a runner-up trophy uh, known as the O'Brien Trophy, which for about a decade was given to the team that finished second <laughs> next to the Stanley Cup winner. And prior to that, it was uh, the the championship trophy for the NHA, I think, which merged into the NHL, if I'm not, maybe, uh, or had some connection. The NHL formed and... And, and, and it goes on. But regardless, it was the runner-up trophy. So the NHL had a runner-up trophy. Did not know that. The Minnesota North Stars finished the 1991 Stanley Cup final. Did not finish with the O'Brien trophy, but finished oh. second. No. But they were then picking in the expansion draft. How does that happen? But it happened. Stuff that you would think you would know, have known watching hockey for 30 years, 35 years, and, and then it, you read it on the pages and it's almost too good to be true or too unbelievable to be true. So that's what I particularly liked. There are broadcast members out there, broadcast media members out there that, that you can relate to in this regard. Ron McLean, for example, has a romantic history of the league that he presents sometimes in these little nuggets you'll see on Hockey Night in Canada. Gord Stellick will often on his morning radio show just say something off the cuff and you're you're you think, wow, I was thinking that too, but I just it was a little blip and I never thought about it again. But it's you know like how beautifully white the garden's ice was maybe or something <laughs> like that. Um, but what Sean does uh, or down goes brown is he puts it in in print in this long form piece a book in a book I should say and and that's what what I liked particularly so I won't say this book is eye opening I'd rather say it's eye catching and oftentimes eye watering leaving you shaking your head as you absorb the oft flawed history of the NHL oh thank you yes and without further ado on the other side of the break Sean McKindo. The Down Goes Brown History of the NHL on Sportslet. Well, thank you for joining us, Sean, all the way from the faraway mystical land of Ottawa. I'd like to visit there someday. Uh, right off the hop, uh, people, you know, you've got an incredible body of work, but uh, maybe sort of uh, tell our audience, how did you build the capability to write wittily but it's hockey, something that people, you know, are so, so serious about in Canada. Yeah, it's it's strange. That, that always confused me because if you go outside of Canada and you mention that you're from Canada, people think of, of two things. Number one is obviously hockey, but the other one is comedy, right? They think SCTV, Kids in the Hall, you know, Norm Macdonald, Phil Hartman, all these. And yet the, the Venn diagram of comedy and hockey in our country doesn't really overlap because... We just, I think part of it is we just take hockey so seriously. It's the national religion and you, you must, we cannot joke about it. Um, but that's not how it is because the fans everywhere are, you know, you, when you actually sit down and talk to fans, they're joking left and right. They're trashing their own team. They're talking this and that. So it's, it was always something that was, that came naturally to me. I mean, I, I grew up as a hockey fan and as a comedy nerd. Like those, those were my two things. Uh, I was the sort of kid that like I would get the, for Christmas, like the David Letterman top 10 books. And then I would read them 
over and over again. It wasn't like usually with comedy, you read it once and then you're done. You've read the jokes. And I would read it over and over and over again because I love the idea of like how they structured the joint, how they set them up and all of that stuff. So uh, it, when it came time to actually sit down and, and, and write about hockey, when I started blogging 10 years ago, you know, I I was trying out different voices and different things, and and I started off writing very serious stuff. I I had very strong opinions about Matt Sundin and his no trade clause and John Ferguson Jr. and and all of these guys, and whenever I did that, the readers kind of went, yeah, okay, that's that's fine. But then every now and then, when I would try to kind of mix the 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 humor with with hockey stuff suddenly that's when it, it really seemed to click with the audience and they'd say oh yeah we really like that we want more of that uh so i just i just tried to, to you know to keep going with it and even as i i sort of got away from doing the the what i would consider the straight comedy pieces and and started writing more generally i i've always kind of kept that uh, you know a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek vibe to it because at the end of the day like this is it's it's fun and i'm a diehard i'm as big a fan as anyone i take it more seriously than i should like most fans do but it's it's still this goofy game with a bunch of guys with sticks skating around. So uh, it's you know to my view, if you're not having some fun with it and you can't have a laugh, then I'm not really sure what you're doing. Having some fun and 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 just going back to you talking about starting with a blog. I mean, if you tr- started writing through traditional outlets, would you have been able to have this much fun and get to this point where you you have this book? You know what? Probably not, because that was the path that I that I tried to go down. I mean, when I when I was growing up as a kid, I wanted to be a sports writer, and at the time, if you wanted to be a sports writer, that meant you had to go to school, you had to get a journalism degree, you had to get a job at some paper somewhere, which would be wherever they could, wherever right. you were going to get hired. It was you weren't going to get to to have your pick. You were going right. to go and cover high school sports in Thunder Bay for five years or whatever it was. Uh, and you would eventually work your way up and hope that you would get to be one of the few very serious columnists that were that were out there. And in, you know, in my case, I followed that path up to the getting the journalism degree part. And when it came time to go to Thunder Bay, no offense to my my many fans in Thunder Bay, but when it came time for for that that part of the job or that that part of the path, I was sort of like, you know what, I'm not sure if I'm this is really what I want to be doing, and I, and I went kind of down a different road. It wasn't until blogs came along years later, and suddenly anybody could could write and could kind of share that uh, again. Uh, you know that that was when I started to get back into it. And you're you're probably right. Like there 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 wasn't that path to come in and say I'm going to work at a newspaper, but I'm going to be the funny guy, or right. <laughs> I'm going to be the history trivia guy, or I'm going to be the guy who do, you know does this niche or that niche because there there were no niches. You had to be a generalist, and that's been both kind of the the blessing and 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 maybe to some extent the curse of the online world is that everybody can be niche and everybody can really drill down and be specific. Uh, and you wind up with all these types of writing and coverage you wouldn't normally get, uh, and uh, and 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 maybe also some stuff that you maybe wouldn't normally want to get. But uh, it's uh, you know on balance it's it's been more good than bad, and and certainly for me personally, like I I wouldn't be doing this kind of work if if I had just followed that traditional path because there just there wasn't a, a, a route to get there. The stalls are going to be very mad at you now. You you yes. insulted Thunder Bay. I got I got an entire family coming after me. This is, <laughs> this is bad news. Uh, well, your roots root. That's what I found very interesting right off the top because you actually explained why you wrote this book and your roots are, uh, if I can borrow from a hockey quote, from non-traditional hockey markets, yeah. Australia and California. So does it, did that help, if we can go way back before the blogs, 
kind of did that help shape you because you didn't have maybe a, a dad or an uncle or a mother or a sister kind of explaining from a perspective of having in you know this ingrained knowledge of hockey you did you have to come at it fresh well, but 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 i i did and that was the thing oh, okay that, uh, you know my 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 family and my my parents are canadian my my whole family is canadian my my uh, dad grew up in montreal lived okay. right across from the forum for uh, for a while and uh uh, so it, it was when uh, you know I, I was born in Australia because they were they were living over there. We lived in California for five years. So when I got to Canada, and and it sounds ridiculous to say this, but when I got to Canada. I'm five years old. I'm already behind when it comes to hockey. Like I'm I'm already like you know catching up. But I did kind of have that that little you know guidance of uh, you know being able to sit down with my dad and have him go, okay, here's what's going on. It's funny that you mentioned being behind as a fan, because I mean, I think we all find it comical that even, you know, us that are hitting 40 or whatever, we knew by the time we were seven, we were starting hockey too late at seven. But yeah. now you're you're a fan too late at five. I mean, it just shows you where hockey's at. Yeah, how intense exactly. It is. I'd, I'd go into school and be like, oh, this thing happened and it was cool. And they'd be like, yeah, that happened last year, too. And I'd be like, I, I wasn't here last year. I didn't know this is the first time I'm seeing it. So now, now jumping ahead to the present. Uh, What's this? What are the distinctions, if any, between I guess the columns you write for like the Athletic or the work you've done for the Guardian and creating a book that's going to be in libraries as long as we have libraries? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a very different process. A, a lot of the writing is similar. I mean, a, a lot of the stuff that I do, even even today, even when I'm writing about something that's happening today, if somebody says, you know, I go go write a piece about William Nealander, go write a piece about John Tavares or or, or this coach getting fired or this trade happening. I, my, the way my brain works is I'm always kind of thinking, all right, but what have we seen in history that was like this? Is there anything similar? Can we learn any lessons from that? Can that help us predict the future? And, and I, you know, I'd love to kind of go back. So anyone who's been reading my writing online knows that I love to go back and, and pull these kind of history stories into it. The, the, the big difference for this is in when you're writing in an online world, I mean, you, you finish your work, you hit send, and two hours later, it's online, and you're interacting with people, and some people are saying, great take, and some people are saying, you suck, and you're in the comments section. And, and Whereas when you sit down to do a book, I mean, it's a two-year process where you're writing stuff, and at the end of the day, you might say, wow, that was a great chapter. I killed it. That's fantastic. No one's going to see it for a year and a half. <laughs> and so it's this, like, you, you really need to have this patience, and it's why it's uh, it's why I'm having so much fun this month now that the book is finally out there, and I'm finally getting to talk to people and hear from people and people are like hey i read the book and that you know i can't this story was crazy i couldn't believe that and i'm like right that is in the book i remember that now that was a couple years ago i wrote it but that's that's cool that you're that you're enjoying it how does sean mcindoe emerge on the sports media scene as down goes brown well that was a, a name that i chose and i I'd, I'd be embarrassed if, if people could if go back in time and see me at, the, at that moment, because it's literally, you got to picture me standing, sitting in front of uh, the, the screen where I'm setting up a new blog, staring at the name field for way too long, trying to think <laughs> of like, what can I call this thing? And I remember reading something once where uh, somebody asked Trent Reznor why he called his band Nine Inch Nails. And he said, it doesn't mean anything, but it's easy to spell, it's easy to remember, and it abbreviates nicely. And I remember going, okay, that seems like it'd be a good tip for, for naming a website too. And I was going through these ideas, and then suddenly I heard Joe Bowen's voice in my head go, down goes Brown, which of course is the the famous, or, or maybe if you're not a Leafs fan, not so famous fight between Sylvain Lefebvre and Rob Brown. And Joe Bowen yells, uh, who is the Leafs uh, now Hall of Fame announcer, starts yelling, down goes Brown, a play on, on down goes Fraser. And, and 
I was like, ah, oh, that's it. That's, you know, that, that works as a name for this blog that I was creating that at the time I figured I was going to keep for three months and then probably abandon like most other hobbies. And what was, what was amazing and what was, you know, in, in a way sort of started me down the path that led to this book was as soon as I had that name out there, I, I suddenly started hearing from people who would, they'd come to the site and they'd leave a comment or they'd shoot me an email and they'd say, I have no idea who you are but I'm gonna follow your stuff because the fact that you named your site that, I remember that call. And I, you know, I still say that sometimes and I, I've never heard anyone else reference it. And it kind of drove home to me that, yeah, like there, there's all these little memories kind of hidden under the surface of being a sports fan. And it's not all Wayne Gretzky breaking a record or Mario Lemieux winning a Stanley Cup. Sometimes it's just this stuff that you don't think of as all that memorable, but people do remember it. And there's this instant connection when when you realize that there's a fellow fan out there who, who remembers it too. Nate, uh, I know you were probably the first guy to tell me about Down Goes Brown because you were very active in the blog scene early on, at least I what I thought was early on. And I remember you might have sent it to me. Uh, uh, it was kind of a little synopsis of all six Canadian teams. I'm I'm not sure, but I remember Phil Kessel breaks down the wing, and then yeah, he breaks down videos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's and th- and that was uh, uh, to me. I thought that was hilarious. But I wanted to ask, actually ask Nate. Nate, could you tell me about your earliest down goes brown memories? Oh, geez, <laughs> I could go on for an hour. I could go on for an hour, but no, I'm sure I'm not sure Sean wants to hear me just quote thing quote things back to him. The one that always sticks in my mind is the Olympic welcome song diss track. Yes. Where it's like, you know, Sidney Crosby, like, you know, just like taunting all his opponents. Like, you call yourself a player, but I got your cup. Got mm-hmm. a two-over series lead, and we effed you up. Yep. <laughs> That's, those, those were great fun. That was, I did those with a guy who, who went by the name Blogie Salming online. His name's Jeff. He's a, he was, and, and he did all the video editing, all the sound work. He recorded, that's his voice and everything. And it was probably the most fun I've ever had as a writer because I could just, you know, shoot him a message and be like, hey, I have this idea. Can you find a backing track? Can you do this? And then I would write this this rap, throw it over the wall, <laughs> and the next day this incredibly put-together professional piece and everything would be out there. And then it would go up and people would go, wow, this is a great Down Goes Brown video. And I'd be like, dude, I <laughs> I wrote it in Notepad. This guy did 90% of the work. Uh, and yet uh, yeah, people would, would throw it back to me. And, and we had a as the the longer we worked together, we had some fun times because I would just keep stretching him more and more on like what we would do until we finally hit the breaking point when I had him do a parody of that Rebecca Black Friday song. Like that was the one that I think that I think broke him because <laughs> I, I I used to email him and you know I'd I'd say like hey what about this song and he'd email me back an hour later going like I might be able to get that or you know I'd say what about this and he'd email me back two hours later saying we might be able to do that. And I remember one day I emailed him. I'm like, what about Rebecca Black's Friday? And he emailed me back 30 seconds later. And he was like, screw you. Because he just knew that this was going to be uh, this, this, this was going to be something that he would probably end up regretting. And he probably did. <laughs> That's a very hockey way of saying things, giving all the credit to the other guy. I appreciate that, Sean. Um, um, the world's most beautiful sport, the world's most ridiculous, ridiculous league. That's what uh, the subtitle is underneath uh, underneath the title of this book. So, is the history of the NHL that much crazier than the NFL, NBA, or MLB? I, you know what I I think it is, and I say that understanding that every every sport and every league I'm sure has their stories. But the the thing with the NHL that you have to to remember is first of all that the history goes back a hundred years. So, 
you know, Major League Baseball also goes back that far and further, but you know, the NFL and NBA don't. So it, the the world was just a very different place in 1917 and, uh, you know, the 1920s and 30s and what passed for normal in, in those days compared to what we see through our own eyes now is some of it is just, you know, it's it's just bizarre uh, to, to look back and think, oh, geez, somebody thought this was okay. But the other thing is, is you know, the NHL has always been this kind of niche league. It's always been the smaller league. It's it, it's in terms of teams, in terms of revenue and, and attention, uh, certainly in, in the United States. Uh, and, and while at the same time in Canada being this big monster that was everyone's favorite, which that, that creates this weird dichotomy where you're always either the monster or the niche underdog. Uh, and, and, you know, you're kind of bouncing back and forth between those, those two, uh, uh, those two planes. Uh, I, and I think it has, it's created this situation where, uh, so many of the decisions and, and things that have been done in the league have just, uh, been the sort of thing that you now look back on and you go like I can't believe that somebody thought that was a good idea <laughs> that thing that they did in 1940 or 1970 or 1980 or last week you know like it, it, it hasn't really stopped to, you know even even into the present day yeah I think I dropped the book on the go trade when you were describing how they flipped the coin to decide who got to spin the wheel the for wheel. Like the 1970s. I mean that uh, Sabres and uh, Canucks expansion the, draft or the, entry the one and only time that league decided to actually get creative and embrace the marketing by by spinning this big stupid raffle wheel instead of just flipping a coin to figure out who's gonna who was gonna get the number one pick and and start the franchise was Gilbert Perot. Yeah, my, yeah. So anyway, you sort of segued into what I want to ask. My favorite, one of my favorite places to write in Hamilton is this Starbucks where you kind of look out the window and there's cops coliseum because it's sort of a reminder. Oh, you know, try to remember the things that never were. So how would you describe that tension you mentioned with the league, like between, you know, we've always done it this way and change? Because the NHL never seems to do anything just incrementally. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it just seems like it's you have to drag them kicking and screaming to, to most of the changes. And then every now and then they just suddenly flip a switch and they're like, we're having outdoor games now. And you're like, wait, what? We're, we're doing... We're Everybody doing loves them. Yeah, and, and and you know, and and credit to them because that's one of the the few examples in certainly in the modern era of the NHL actually being a leader and coming up with an idea, not just doing something five years after the NBA already did it. So it's uh, it, it is a uh, you know it's 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 a situation where you're right. I mean, there there's it, it, the the NHL for whatever reason, and and maybe it's not the NHL, maybe it's the hockey world is just very traditional. They're very conservative. They don't like to change. Uh, they they get their backs up if somebody suggests change and, and it's 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 strange because the, the it seems like the two driving forces for the people who make decisions in the NHL is they desperately wish that the league was more popular and and could attract new fans and they don't want to hear anything from anyone who's not already a diehard like if you haven't been a fan for 30 years don't even put your hand up and make a suggestion you, you are expected to really put your time in and serve it before they want to listen to you if, so if you are a new fan and i think a lot of people have had this experience in, in over the last few years where you become a new hockey fan and you say hey you know this is great but i don't understand this and instead of the hockey world saying all right let's explain why this is it's like yeah of course you don't understand you dummy you fake fan you're not a real diehard yeah, like so us and you're left sitting there going, gosh, guys, why do you suppose we don't seem to be able to, to you know, expand our fan base here? Right? Why do you think it seems to be a, tough to get people on board? It's, it's because partly uh, there's just this resistance to anything ever being done differently or even having to explain why you do something a certain way. Are things changing in that regard under, like, since Gary Bettman took over, have things changed in any way, do you, you know, think? Gary Bettman has 
it, it's it, Gary Bettman has certainly improved the league in a lot of ways. He has he's been the commissioner for twenty five years. You, you can't just say it's been good or it's been bad. It's it's it there there has been both. Uh, he he has uh, you know he's 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 leaving a very complicated legacy. I'm not sure that that problem I just described is necessarily getting all that better. Okay. Uh, it, because you know when you look at things like uh, you know and th- and this is a something that it's, it's a drum that I've been banging for years and and people who who know my work are probably starting to roll their eyes already going here he goes again but the the fact that when Gary Bettman came into the league offense was at a certain level the number of goals that were scored a game were at a certain level had been uh, for for a while now and you had the you had Sports Illustrated doing cover stories about how the NHL was so much more fun than the NBA because the NBA was all defense and it was boring and low scoring and the NHL was fast and they, and sexy they even like Sports Illustrated called the <laughs> NHL sexy and uh, and and then scoring starts to drop. We enter the dead puck era and the neutral zone trap and clutch and grab. And you know this is the the sort of place where you know to my mind the the missed opportunity here for a, a leader who is still relatively new and had a, you know had had a lot of uh, uh, you know probably had a lot of benefit of the doubt from from people to say we're not going to let this happen. We're going to keep we're going to make sure the game stays open and fast and we're going to do something. And instead, they didn't. And and I, I wrote a piece for ESPN a few years ago where I went back over 20 years, and for each and every year, was able to find an article with Gary Bettman or somebody like that saying, "We're going to fix this scoring problem," and and never actually doing it. And you know, if if somebody at that point had just put up their hand and said, "Why don't we just make the nets a little bit bigger?" Or why don't we just change this rule? Or why don't we change that? But there's always this pushback that says, "No, that's we can't do it. That's not how it's done. That we that we do it a certain way." And that's it. And and really, throughout his entire tenure, with the one exception being the lockout season, when they lost the season of the lockout and suddenly they came back with all these new rules, I feel like there was an understanding that, okay, everyone has been has missed his hockey so much that we can come back and we can have the shootout and we can have we can take out the red line and people aren't going to complain too much because we're going to be happy that we're that we're just back. Other than that, there's there's still to this day is this resistance. To, to changing anything, you know, look at look at what's going on now with the goalie equipment. Like it's been two or three years since they decided to make this stuff smaller. They still can't agree what it looks like. The goalies are mad. The goalies are complaining. They got a bruise on their arm, so we got to go back. You know, it's it's just when you and when you compare it to sports like the NBA or Major League Baseball or or certainly the NFL, where you know it it, it all it takes is one low scoring game, and the NFL changed all its rules around passing defense. Because they wanted to make sure that the that the offense stayed up, and we've never really had the level of leadership at the NHL to make that happen. Yeah, in the present, what what remedy could the NHL adopt tomorrow, and that you think would drive up scoring? You know what? To that's, somewhere around early '90s level. That's the thing, because right now, when you look at the uh, you know what can the NHL do now, all the best players in the NHL, you know the the the, the next wave, right? Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, Patrick Laney, uh, you know Elias Peterson. All of these guys have lived their entire lives in the dead puck era. Like they have literally, I remember I saw a survey ESPN did where they asked players what rule changes they would make. And Connor McDavid said uh, something along the lines of maybe we should take out 
maybe we should put the red line back in as far as the two line pass uh, because maybe then the neutral zone wouldn't be so clogged. And I was like, that answer doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but I was like, geez, like, does he not remember like the New Jersey Devils neutral zone trap? And then I was like, oh my God, no, he doesn't remember. He was born in 1997. He has literally your, your best, most explosive, entertaining player. Their entire life has been spent in a hockey world where it's defense first and it's not okay to win 5-4. If you lose 2-1, to one, that's all right. Every coach in the league has become a coach in that era. Almost every coach in the league has had their whole coaching career in that era. You know, In fact, we've got a lot of coaches in the league who played during the dead puck era, retired, coached in the minors, and are now coaching in the NHL. Like, There's just this incredible institutional momentum against making any changes. I mean, I've said before, to me, what I would do if I'm, when I'm named commissioner of the NHL, <laughs> I'm going to get a bunch of people in a room. I'm going to get some GMs, some players, coaches. I'm going to get Scotty Bowman. I'm going to get Wayne Gretzky. I'm going to get as many of these. Some media members, maybe. Maybe one or two <laughs> media members. And I'm going to get them all in. I'm going to say, all right, look, guys, we need scoring to go up by at least a goal a game. If we get, if we get up to six and a half to seven, that's not even 80s levels. That's like early 90s. Mid-70s. Let's get yeah. to there. Yeah, mid-70s. Let's see if we can get to there. I'm open to any. You guys can make whatever changes you want. You want to change the rules. You want to change the, the, the layout of the rink. You, you tell me what to do. There's only two qualifications, two, two restrictions I'm putting on you. Number one, any idea you give me, it's got to be something we can do on opening night next season. If it needs years of study or if it's an equipment change that we're going to have to spend years, we're not doing that. Whatever changes you want, opening night, we're going to do it. Number two is... We're going to keep your changes for one year, and if scoring hasn't gone up, I'm just making the nets bigger, and I don't want to hear anybody tell me that they had a better idea or that that wasn't the way to do it. Because at some point, I mean, anyone who's ever looked at a video of Wayne Gretzky coming down the, you know, cutting across and taking a slap shot, and you just look at all this big, beautiful net that he had to shoot at. And then you look at Alexander Ovechkin or Connor McDavid doing the same thing, and it's a giant goalie wearing giant equipment, who is perfectly positioned with a perfect butterfly that he's been coached his whole life on, and it's it's just a little, it's an inch over each shoulder for them to shoot at, and that's all they've got. Give them a little bit more room to shoot for. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot. I'm not talk, I'm talking soccer nets. I'm talking give the Austin Matthews and, and McDavid's and Brock Bessers and give those guys an extra couple of inches and let's see what they can do with it. I mean, to, to the credit of the goalie, too, though, in this case, I mean, and I want to get back to some of the themes in the book, but I'm just thinking the sticks have changed so much, too, that that uh, that has to be a factor as well. They're, they, the argument from the goalie would be like, hey, this guy can shoot like a rocket. Yeah, right and, 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 the, you know, and the argument back to that is, yes, the, the, this guy can now shoot a couple miles an hour. You used to be five foot nine, wearing like little tiny equipment, and now you're six foot seven, and you're wearing a beekeeper suit. So, right. uh, you know, at some point, we gotta try to figure this out. I always, every time I make this argument, I always have goaltenders email me or, or tweet at me, and they'll say like, "You don't understand the training we've had and the muscle memory that we've built up. If you change this net by even an inch, right. that's that throws off my angles. It throws off all the positioning." And I always write them back and I say, "You're you're selling me on the." idea right now like what you've just described is a benefit of my idea not uh not something that's going to detract from it so you must have been when when the season started this year and you watched the leafs for example just that game against chicago if you remember mm-hmm. that must have been music to your ears then. well it is i mean th- look the, the games are just more fun when there's more scoring and i know every time i say that somebody will tell me that you know what a one nothing game can be beautiful too 
And yes, we have all seen one nothing games that were fantastic, that were just, you know, were 2-1 games, especially in the playoffs, overtime, you're going back and forth. Hey, it's 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 great. And we've all seen 8-3 to three games that were sloppy and ugly and, and weren't fun to watch. But when you see a game like that, like that, you know, Leafs-Blackhawks game, and, you, you know, you're on Twitter or you're where, and everybody's just raving and talking about how much fun it is, and you're just sitting there going... Like this doesn't have to be a once a month thing. Like with with this, we could have more games that are like this because unfortunately, there are fun one nothing games. There are also one nothing games that are deadly, brutally dull, boring slog fests. And if you're someone who is not a hockey fan, but maybe it's your first game. Maybe your friend is dragged out. Maybe you're at your friend's house and they're watching the game, and you sit down to give it a try. If you watch that, you will never come back. You have been lost forever as a hockey fan, and you know what? I'm, I I don't need to hear from. I, I kind of sometimes call them the hockey hipsters who who want to tell me the beauty of the one nothing game. You know what? If it, one nothing when it's end to end is great, one nothing when it's just block shots and defensive positioning and everyone collapsing in front of the net is terrible. And you, if you're trying to expand your game and your fan base, you can't keep serving that up and expecting anyone to come back. You know, after the the Leafs kind of exploded out of the gate, and then they had the uh, the game against Dallas right after that, where they also I think Matthews might ever Tavares had a hat trick in one of those games. Um, Mike Babcock, I remember I was cutting the post that night, said like oh, this isn't going to last. I, mean, I don't know if you remember hearing because that. Mike Babcock is an NHL coach, and he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to win six to five. He wants to win two to one, even though six to five gets you the same number of points in the standings. Uh, it just, it, you know, it, it's it's I, I, my uh, my buddy Bill Barnwell, who writes uh, football for ESPN, tweeted a couple of days ago uh, something about uh, his his rankings of the ten best offensive minds in the NFL in terms of coaches, and it just struck me like you couldn't even ask that question today in the NHL. Like if I said like who are the ten best offensive minds in the coaching ranks. It, the, the question doesn't even register with us as hockey fans because there's no such thing as an offensive mind. You, you know, there might be somebody who, if you win four to three, isn't going to bag skate you the next day. But everybody is a defensive coach. Everybody is in the Mike Babcock school that says we've got to keep the goals down. We've got to get. We've got to turn it into low event hockey, which isn't. The, you know, the, the Leafs are a good team. If you're a better team than the other team. You should want to play high event hockey because that's going to even out the randomness or take away some of the randomness and it's going to in theory help the help the the better team win. If you're bad, then you want low event boring hockey. If there's only 3 goals, maybe two of them will bounce in your way. But I you know, I I'd love to see someday some team go and win the Stanley Cup winning games 6 to 5 and maybe some of that copycat would kick in in the in the league. Uh but I you know, it just Every year that goes by that we keep thinking this way just makes it so much harder to ever change it. Is there like a crossover between that and how the league's structured with a salary cap and it kind of everyone kind of regresses toward a mean? It could be, yeah. I mean, the the, the parody is another piece of it. And I know that the, you know, Gary Bettman loves his parody. He loves his competitive balance. He thinks it's just the greatest thing ever that every night you have no idea who's going to beat who in every playoff series. You have no idea who's going to win or who's who won't. And, and I get that. Uh, you know, I, I, I see... To some extent, the appeal of that, uh, you know, I, I and I think I understand why a lot of hockey fans look at, for example, the NBA, where it feels like we all know who's going to win the championship two the games into the season. Yeah, yes, yes, clearly the Raptors. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but uh, it's you know it it, it is it, you know there there is that that element of it where especially you know again if it's low scoring and when you're giving out points to people who lose and incentivizing coaches to get to overtime and play 
defensive and low event boring boring hockey in the third period uh, that that certainly is part of it but again you would think that would be a reason for a team like the Leafs or, or some of the other teams that have more skill go you know why are you playing down to the level of the other team by trying to win 2-1 why don't you go out there and try to win 6-1 and if it ends up being 6-5 it's still a win all of our highbrow fans at home right now are saying you were supposed to talk about the book while they're smoking their cigars and <laughs> and sipping their brandy so I'm going to bring it back if you don't right, mind do it um and I'm going to keep it highbrow and ask you about the cover of this book. Yes. I looked at it a few times, like, okay, for some reason he really likes Larry Robinson or Jim Schoenfeld or something like that. And then I looked at it in you know passing, and I realized that Jim Schoenfeld is kneeing Larry Robinson in the jewels. How did you pick this picture for this book? I, I've never noticed that before. That's uh, that's a game changer. Yes, no. That is uh, that was something where we uh, once once we were done being told that we couldn't use anything that the NHL had approval on because uh, they didn't they didn't want to help us on this project. We, really? Uh, we uh, <laughs> we found this one, and I think it I think it does capture in in, in in more ways than one because yeah, I mean it does have somebody getting need in the pills, which is I, I think does capture the spirit of the thing a little bit. But it also has, I mean, you've got Larry Robinson, one of the all-time greats, and you've got Jim Schoenfeld, who does show up in the book a few other times uh, for a few other reasons as, as one of the kind of great characters. And, uh, uh, you know, there weren't, there weren't too many times that the Sabres got the best of the Canadians uh, back in those days, but at least this, this might be at least one example. Great, uh, great segue, actually. Um, and I wanted to talk about Jim Schoenfeld does appear uh, later in the book a couple times, and particularly in the 1988, I think, Prince of Wales Conference Final. I remember watching that as a kid, and the ra- yellow raincoat referees, all that stuff. And there's why I bring this up is myth deconstruction. There's a lot of myth deconstruction in this book. Um, and before we go into that, we always like to get our authors to read a little bit. So I want you to read the part about how Sackick and the movie Air Force One are sure. intertwined. So I'm just going to pass this book over and sure uh, thing. we'll light the fire here and you can read a read All by right. the roaring fire. Just yeah, just the, right. that section there those two pages. Okay, so gather around everyone. Uh, this is uh, this is a one of the what I call the strange but true chapters and this is in between each chapter I've got a a sort of mini chapter where I uh, describe something that is just a little bit odd. Should it be stranger but true? Because it's a lot of this is strange. You're like, oh my God, oh my God. And then you get a nugget that's even crazier. That's a good point. We're going to recall all the books <laughs> and we're going to make that change by hand. Uh, so this is Strange But True. How Hollywood Saved the Avalanche, a Harrison Ford blockbuster helps Colorado keep their franchise player. The term franchise player gets thrown around a lot, but in the case of, Col- of the Colorado Avalanche, Joe Sackick truly was the franchise. He was there before the Avalanche even existed, establishing himself as a bona fide star during the Quebec Nordiques days. He was the team's best player when it made the move south, serving as the public face of the franchise as it started the process of winning over a new fan base. And he was the one who received the team's first Stanley Cup from Gary Bettman in 1996, and the one who handed off its second to Ray Bork in an emotional moment in 2001. He never played anywhere else. And when he finally hung up his skates in 2009, it was only a few years before he became the team's general manager. Joe Sackick is the Colorado Avalanche. And that's why it comes as a surprise to many fans to learn that about the day he signed a contract with the New York Rangers. Well, an offer sheet, at least. 
Just two years after the Avalanche had landed in Colorado and one year after they'd won the Stanley Cup, Sackick found himself facing restricted free agency in the summer of 1997. The Avs wanted him back, but playing out of the old McNichol Sports Arena, the team was already losing money. In the days before the salary cap, that left teams like Colorado vulnerable to having their stars poached by the league's richer markets. There weren't many richer than New York, and unfortunately for Colorado, the Rangers had a big hole to fill after Mark Messier bolted town to sign with the Vancouver Canucks. They targeted Sackick, and early that August, they got him to sign a three-year, $21 million offer sheet. The contract included a $15 million signing bonus to be paid up front, designed to make the deal all but impossible for the cash-strapped avalanche to match. Colorado GM Pierre Lacroix told reporters that he didn't know whether or not he'd match the offer, and he sure sounded like a man who was telling the truth. He'd recently signed Peter Forsberg to a big extension, and was already paying Patrick Waugh plenty. It really did seem as if the Avalanche might have to let Sackick walk, accepting five first-round picks from the Rangers as compensation, but crippling a cup contender in the process. And that's when Harrison Ford showed up. The Avalanche were owned by a company called Ascent Entertainment, which was involved in the film industry. Just days before Sackick signed the Rangers' offers, Ford's summer blockbuster Air Force One had opened across the country. The film had been bankrolled by an Ascent subsidiary, and its success or failure would have a direct impact on Ascent's bottom line, and by extension, the Avalanche's ability to pay Sackick. The film was a hit, opening with a $37 million weekend and writing strong review and word of mouth to weeks of solid business. By the time a decision was due on Sackick, Air Force One had recouped its reported $85 million budget, and Ascent could breathe easier about making big commitments elsewhere in its business. And so the Avalanche paid up to keep Sackick. Soon a new arena was built, and the Avalanche's days of being a target for big market bullies was over. Sackick would lead the team to another cup in 2001, winning MVP honors in the process, and he'd go on to become one of the few members of the Hockey Hall of Fame to have only played for one franchise. And everyone agreed to never speak of that Rangers contract ever again. Wow. See, never would have made that connection. And by the way, are you um, are, are you reading an audio version of this? I have done an audio version. There is an audio version available read by me. And, and how did that, uh, how, like vocal cords, was that, how, how did you deal with that? You know that? what, it was tougher than I thought. I, I honestly, this, I, I sound, uh, I sound kind of foolish when I say this, but when they first uh, reached out to me and said, would you like to do an audio version, I thought, great. I kind of pictured myself sitting, you know, kind of in front of a microphone by my laptop and and doing it from there. And it's a much bigger production. You have to go into a studio. You've got a director. You've got a producer. They they kept bringing me mint tea. They kept making me eat apples for some reason. And it was uh, it was a very yes. Thank you. Uh, it was it was a uh, it, it was a, a much more of a process than I thought, especially the fact that I mean, you heard me reading that I tripped up on a couple of words here or there just kept going. I, I'm having flashbacks because when you do an audiobook, <laughs> if you trip on a word even slightly, you get a voice in your ear saying, do it again. And I, I've, I've always uh, had a writing style that is, is very flowing and, and I like lots of long sentences and I like, you know, run on and lots. And I will tell you, I, I've, I like that right up until I had to read it out loud and I've been cursing myself ever since. And my next book is just going to be like the shortest sentences that you can imagine because I'm, I'm not going through that process of going reading an entire paragraph only to trip on the very last word and having to start all over again. Well, we like to give uh, gifts to our guests. And um, so I just handed you a box of throat coat tea. Wow. According to the smoking gun, this is in the rider of a lot of bands when they you know get off stage or whatever so i feel like a rock star and and you know what else um there's something else for you uh 
That might make you feel like even more of a rock this is, star. This is in a brown paper bag. So. Yeah, it's not a bo <laughs> bottle of liquor. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, so you can tell everyone what that is. I've I've got a uh, I've got a classic uh, pair of bab socks, <laughs> and I've got the uh, Jean Beliveau from the Saki Hall of Fame. That's the uh, the history element. So I, I just wanted history. to say that we you know I always try and find something unique. And Nate said, "Hey, this guy's reading an audio book." And I always pick the longest passages uh, by default for people to read on the yeah. show. So throw Coty. And then the guys at Babsocks actually, I went to buy a pair. And I, I'm not one of those shills that's like, hey, this is from Babsocks. Go uh -huh. there. But they said, hey, like, we love this guy. Have two pairs. And I didn't have to pay for it. You know what? I'm, I got to apologize to Mike Babcock. I was, I was trashing his defense <laughs> first. Uh, but, and now that I've got his scowling face looking right back at me. <laughs> Every uh, time you kick is, your heels up. This is the, yeah, this is going to be fantastic. Thank you, guys. And John Beliveau. Yeah. And John Beliveau as well, yeah. The, the, the world's classiest socks, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I like I Mike Babcock more when he coached the uh, Lethbridge Pronghorns. Uh, <laughs> but those strange but true stories, was there one in the book that... Uh, you basically discovered it during the research. There, there were, uh, yeah, there, there, the one that jumps to mind, and I'll, I'll kind of just tell the story quickly, but that that I hadn't heard, and it, and it really, it, it was, it was a fun experience to find out about this because this one actually happens in the '90s, so I'm already a hockey fan by this point. I learned lots of stuff about the '20s and '30s and '40s, of course, that I, you know, would have would have had no way of knowing. But this was one where, you know, I was a diehard fan at the time, and I was like, I totally miss this. I'd never heard this story before. And it's the story of Bernie Wolf. So this is, it's the 1992 uh, expansion draft. The Senators and Tampa Bay Lightning are, are coming into town, or coming into the league. Uh, the, it's the first real expansion that the league has done since the mid-70s, because the WHA was sort of a, a, a merger. The San Jose Sharks had been an expansion team, but there was this kind of weird dispersal draft with the Minnesota North Stars. This is the first time we're doing a full-on NHL expansion draft, and the league has to come up with the rules. And as any Senator or Lightning fan would have told you last year when the Golden Knights were putting together a good team, their rules were very different. And it was much, they, they made it much easier for the existing teams to keep their players. And one of the, the rules was that NHL teams, the existing teams, could keep two goaltenders. And that, that works out well because NHL teams typically have two goaltenders. Uh, and, and the Senators and the Lightning kind of went, hey, wait a second, we're not going to have any goalies to choose from. And so the league put in this additional rule that said you could keep two NHL goaltenders, but you had to expose one goalie from your organization who had NHL experience. So you had to have a third guy if you wanted to keep two. So... One team, the Washington Capitals, had two goaltenders they wanted to keep. They were one of those teams. They kind of split their goaltending duties 40-40. And so they, they, uh, they wanted to keep both of them. And they had a third goaltender in their system who did have NHL experience, but that was Olaf Kolzig, who was their top prospect, went on to become a great NHL goalie. He had played like one or two NHL games. They didn't have to protect him because of ex his experience level, but he was their only other guy with, that had ever played in the NHL. So if they wanted to protect the two NHL guys, they had to make Olaf Kolzig available, didn't want to do that. So they came up with the idea. David Poyle, the GM of the Capitals, realized wait a second, I can go out and just acquire a goaltender who has NHL experience for the purpose of exposing me in the draft. <laughs> and that's what he did. He went out and he signed a goaltender named Bernie Wolf, who had played in the NHL. In fact, had played for the Washington Capitals and had played for quite a few years, had lots of NHL experience. And so they signed Bernie Wolf to a contract, put him on the list and said, here you go, Ottawa, here you go, Tampa. You can draft Bernie Wolf from the Washington Capitals. One problem, Bernie Wolf hadn't played in the NHL since the 1970s. 
<laughs> he had he had been retired. He was well into his 40s. He had been retired for over a decade. At, but, as the Capitals pointed out, the rule book didn't say anything about when the NHL experience had to be. It just said that you just needed to have NHL experience. And so somebody who had played 15 years ago technically counted. And and my favorite part of the story is the reaction of Phil Esposito, who was the, the GM of the of Tampa and and had led their bid. And his his reaction was something along the lines of freaking Bernie Wolf. I didn't pay fifty million dollars to draft Bernie Wolf. He wasn't any freaking good when I played against him in the seventies. <laughs> so it's one of those stories where it's one of the only times in the book where the end of the story is that the NHL actually does the common sense thing and smartens up and says no, Dave. Th- they smack David Poyle in the head and say, you can't sign Bernie Wolf. got to go get somebody else. And he does, and, and he gets a, a goaltender who had actually played in that decade. Uh, and things work out work out well in the end. But for a while, uh, good old David Poyle tried to uh, tried to get Bernie Wolf uh, out there as his, uh, as his loophole goaltender to beat the expansion draft. Yeah, I think they even did an equalization draft the next year, like a phase two, didn't they? They did, yeah, when, when the Ducks Florida and the Panthers stock. came yeah. in, they, uh, they they let the Senators and Lightning grab a couple of players, too, because they realized how badly they had to set them up. Speaking of the draft, how did the Minnesota North Stars get to select in the 1991 expansion draft? Yeah, the, the, they... <sighs> they had been in the league and, and Yeah, they had been in the league forever, but what, what happened was, I mean, you can trace the, the Minnesota North Stars back to uh, the 70s and the folding of the Cleveland Barons and, and the, the Gunn brothers were involved in that ownership and became the owners of the North Stars. And so when it was time to put a team in Cal- another team in California, the Lee wanted an expansion team in San Jose. The Guns wanted to sell the North Stars and go to San Jose. In fact, they, they, they at one point were trying to move the North Stars to San Jose and the NHL realized, wait a second, we can make more money by doing this as an expansion thing. We didn't want to, they didn't want to lose the market in Minnesota, although they would eventually in a few years anyways. And so they came to this deal where the, the Gunn brothers uh, were basically given this San Jose expansion team, even though they still kind of own the North Stars. So they got to do this weird crossover dispersal slash expansion draft where they got to the Sharks got to pick 10 guys from the North Stars and then the North Stars and the Sharks were both doing an expansion draft even though one of them only one of them was an expansion team and you've got the Minnesota North Stars remember that year was the year they won on the crazy Cinderella playoff run so they literally were playing in the Stanley Cup final and less than a week later drafting in an expansion draft so they they have to be the only team you know when people say can you believe that the the vegas golden knights made the stanley cup final one year after an expansion draft we can do you one better the minnesota north stars made the stanley cup final one week before their expansion draft unbelievable so that's some of the strange but true stuff um in terms of myth deconstruction there's a lot of things i thought were fact that i found out in this book were not fact and i i really enjoyed that part so a couple of the examples, for example, for me, was the Cam Neely, Ulf Samuelson uh, yes. thing. Yeah. I, I was always under the impression that his career was ended by Ulf Samuelson. But in fact, you point out that it's his hips. Yes. It's his hips. And then the other one was, I uh, wrote this, oh yeah, Jim Schoenfeld, mm-hmm. who we were talking about on the cover of the book. Uh, he has the play it, play it again, Sam line, where exactly. he actually never said, what was it? What it was, was it? Everybody, everybody remembers Jim Schoenfeld saying, have another donut, you fat pig. <laughs> 
And he never actually said that. He said those things, but not in that order. The, the actual transcript, he called him a fat pig first and then dropped the have another donut a little bit later in the conversation. And yeah, in the book, I say it's basically our played against Sam moment or something where right. everybody remembers it a certain way. Uh, but when you go back and actually watch it, you go, oh, yeah, he, he actually said it in a slightly different order. Because in Casablanca, he, he never says play it against him. He just play, play it, against. Sam, or something like yeah, that, right? Yeah. Um, um, so I guess the bigger, uh, more journalistic question is, how do these things become fact? Uh, I mean, maybe you don't know the answer, but I guess in debunking these things, do you? Is it almost like something that you're driven to do? Or are you like, wow, like people need to know this? this it's, is yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where you know some of this stuff is stuff that that you know I would have believed right up until I you know you, you go back and watch the clip and you go, wait a second, he didn't say that, uh, which is something where I mean, if if you're not a fan, you don't get that there's any significance to that. But if if you are, you're certainly like, wait a second, I've been remembering this wrong the whole time. In the case of Cam Neely, that's one where I I think it's it's a case where the myth is just such a better story than the reality right we all remember all samuelson sticking his knee out and clipping cam neely in the playoffs in 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 that uh, that series in the early 90s and we remember that you know being this cheap shot and i mean you couldn't ask for two better characters a villain Alf Samuelson, one of the regarded as one of the dirtiest players, a guy who you know nobody liked. Ever, you know, Don Cherry used to go on Saturday night and say, "Ever, somebody please take care of this guy." And Cam Neely, the the warrior, the power forward, the good Canadian boy, and the idea that Alf Samuelson sticks his knee out and and ends Cam Neely's career uh, is is almost too attractive a story that you don't want to point out that a that wasn't the hit that caused the real injury that it, the, the serious injury came later in the series and it was on a hit from Alf Samuelson but one that wasn't really all that dirty it was more just a collision and that the career-ending injury that came later you know Cam Neely did miss a lot of time with that injury but the career-ending injury was was later like you said but it was a hip problem that had really nothing to do with Alf Samuelson and you know, I, I think you may have answered the first part of my uh, very uh, ambiguous question which is like you know Don Cherry was putting that front and center so that may be the reason why i mean yeah. because he's in every home in canada and what being watched by everyone and it just becomes ingrained and it's passed down sometimes again it's, and again. Just, it's just too good to not be true and then sean mcindoe will come and deconstruct these myths Mythbuster. that's there, right there you go yeah 20 25 years later i show up and correct the record yeah i did now we always try to keep these evergreen and not be too focused on you know the 24-hour news cycle but Getting back to Gary Bettman, there were a couple interesting, you know, juxtaposed moments with his induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame this week. The one is this is going on at the same time as the NHL having the settlement of the concussion lawsuit. Mm -hmm. The second thing, maybe this is only interesting to a few people, is that here's the commissioner of the NHL going in at the same time as the interim commissioner of the CWHL, Jaina Hefford. We have to shout out our fellow good Kingstonian. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess on the first one, you sort of leave the book open-ended. We don't know where the league's going to evolve next, but how is that concussion story? How do you see that playing out going I, forward? Even though the loss, there's been a settlement in that suit, there's still it's still an it's, open it's thing. It's still ongoing, but I, I, I do reference the suit in the book because the last chapter of the book is where I kind of look at, okay, what's the next 100 years going to look like? And one of the things I, I say in that chapter that, that I wrote, uh, you know, about a year ago was that, you know, there's this loss, this concussion lawsuit hanging over the league, and it could be an existential threat to the league because there, there was a billion-dollar settlement in the NFL, and the NFL is is orders of magnitude larger and more capable of absorbing that than the NHL. If the NHL got hit with a billion-dollar 
settlement that would literally threaten the existence of a lot of the teams in this league and and maybe the league itself as we know it and now fast forward to, to today where we realize that it not only was it not a billion dollar settlement it wasn't anything close i mean you're you're talking 19 million dollars which is not pocket change but for a league the size of the nhl it's kind of pocket change and it's it's hard to look at that as anything other than a, a, an almost total win for Gary Bettman and for the owners, which doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a total loss for the players. I, you know, I, I think it, it doesn't have to be a total zero-sum game where, where one wins and one loses. But, I mean, it, it's almost the best-case scenario for, for he and the league. And, uh, you know, whether you like the guy or you don't like him uh, or whether you're somewhere in between, this is why he gets paid the big bucks to take a situation like this that really as recently as as a few months ago looked like it could be a threat to the existence of the league and to turn it into something where i mean they're they're going to write a, a a check uh where i mean the lawyers are going to get more money than than most of the players are yeah and i guess there are st- yeah indeed uh, i mean as a as a fan of the game who you know i mean people pay to see players not Mm-hmm. They don't, and no one, you know, you know, no one holds a parade to celebrate a great balance sheet. Was that as a fan, as a fan, you know, separating the journalist part from yours? Was that how? Was that deflating to see? You know what? It's it's tough, and I, I actually am probably going to write a thing about this this week because it's it's a little bit. In theory, as a fan, this should be good news because you're an NHL fan, and anything that was threatening the health of the league is a bad thing, and you should want it to go away. And when you see a headline that says thing that was threatening health of NHL goes away and NHL is going to you know really continue with without much impact that should make you happy because the NHL is is your favorite sports league and yet I think a lot of us have got these sort of mixed feelings where it's like wait a second it it just feels like you know you look at the players and and I'm, I'm certainly no lawyer I can't comment to the to the legal issues in play or you know how these suits work whether it should have been more whether it could have been more um but it, it is awfully hard especially if you were a fan of these of, of that era to look at these players that you watched and you cheered on as they were fighting and hitting and coming back from their injuries and oh my gosh what a tough guy he got his bell rung but he's right back out there and to see where a lot of them are at now and to see that a lot of them need help and and have been asking for help and have been denied that help and and then to see them sort of try to get a group together to to push the NHL uh, to for 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 compensation and 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 it's in a lot of cases just recognition that the problem even existed in the first place and to see the NHL come out of that with almost near total victory I think it really leaves some some mixed feelings for for any fan. Even though it's good for the league, you're just kind of left sitting there going like this. This feels kind of icky. It feels like the, the maybe the, I you know was justice may have been served from a legal perspective, but it, it it doesn't feel like we got the right outcome here in terms of in terms of just what was right and wrong. Oh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought with that uh, with that ping from the phone. Um, t- you know, touching on the injuries. Um, we're reading uh, right now uh, Damian Cox's new book. It's going to come out, or it's already out, but we're going to have him in in a few days. And I, I, I was really struck by just how much injuries played into the narrative of these former players. He's describing the 1992-3 season of Leafs and Kings, and obviously that's you know we all know that story. But 
yeah, all these guys now when he's interview interviewing them, McSorley, Gilmore, are having they have these chronic injuries, and, it, mm-hmm. and, he, and the way he describes it, I thought, wow, like we are in that era now where like you're going to write a sports book. I don't know about 30 years ago if you would be including all those things in in the narrative, and, you know, and now it, now and, you are, and it does, and it changes because what we consider. You know what we know about injuries and what we consider acceptable, and I say we. I'm, I'm talking as fans. Like we, you know, all of us hated the fact that Bobby Orr's career ended so early, and we hate that his knees were bad, and and that you know we didn't get to see him play for as long as he could, and we hated the fact that Merrill Lemieux had a bad back, and that you know his career uh, was interrupted by that. And yet, I think as a fan, there's a party that says, you know what. You're going to be an NHL player. The bad knees, the bad back, it's going to happen. And you know, we're, we we understand that. And we understand that when you hear about guys limping around or having all the scars from surgeries, as a fan, and it, and it sounds like an awful thing to say, but as a fan, you're kind of okay with that because you feel like that was part of the risk that was taken. What we didn't know, you know, in the night, I, I grew up as a fan in the '80s, and I I, I love the fighting. I was I had all the Don Cherry, Rock'em Sock'ems. I knew the tough guy on every team. You know, at the time. We didn't know that 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 these injuries were of the sort that they were and could have the impact they were. We thought guys got their bells rung. We used to say nobody ever really gets hurt in a hockey fight. That's how you defended it, right? Because it was you know nobody you know maybe nobody you might died. get a black eye, you might get a broken <laughs> nose, but nobody gets really hurt. Not 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 like you know having a bad knee or something like that that's going to stick with you. And of course we were wrong, and it did stick with us. It sticked with the players. And maybe we should have known. I mean, there's a part that you kind of look back and go, what did you think when this guy was getting knocked out in a fight? What did you think was happening? What did you think the long-term impact was going to be? Uh, but we didn't know. And, and now I'm glad that it's, it's, that's part of these guys' stories and, and, and you know, in the sense that it's, it is the reality. And we need to know it. And as fans, we need to kind of deal with it and try to reconcile it and, and, and figure out our, what was our own role in letting this happen for so long. In talking to you, and I've never met you before, I'm I'm realizing you know the the depth and breadth of your knowledge of the league. You're definitely not a guy that just tells jokes. That's that's for sure. You're no. This is. I mean, it's. I've I've been, I I've been a diehard fan of of, of this sport and this league for my whole life. And mm. uh, and and you know, I mean, I've I've got three decades plus of of diehard hockey fandom and and you know i point that out because i i do i criticize the league an awful lot i do it in the book i do it in my writing i do it on twitter uh and you know every now and then somebody will say you know do you even like hockey (laughs) and i'm sort of like dude you don't you don't want to go there with me I'll, i'll compare our resumes in terms of being a fan uh as much as you want but i i think that that gives you some perspective to, to criticize in a way that I hope is fair, but is also uh, not coming from some sort of detached place where you just view everything in terms of, oh, what, you know, who knows, who can say whether this is right or wrong. No, I think as a fan, I mean, you're the reason this league exists. You should be able to stand up and go, you know what, no, this isn't good enough. I want to get back to the comedy angle with that said. And, and in particular, uh, in the book, you talk about, uh, or you write about, the outdoor games that we don't all know about. Yes. Um, and I want to talk about one in specific, or specifically, and that is uh, the, the the Vegas uh, game that hosted uh, the Kings and the Rangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give me a brief 
background on that because I want to read you something from Kelly Rudy's book that came out last spring. So, so this is, and I, I, you can tell me what year it is. I want to say like maybe 91, I think 92, it's 91. something like yeah. that. And yeah, there was an outdoor game in Las Vegas in uh, as, as, as part of in 92 as part of training camp. It was an exhibition game. This was obviously before they were doing regular season games. But if you're a fan of an NHL team that hasn't hosted an outdoor game yet, you can feel extra bad knowing that a Las Vegas parking lot got to host an outdoor game before you did. And, and there was, uh, it was the, the Kings and the Rangers, two of the marquee teams, Gretzky and, and Messier and everyone. And it was, uh, it, it was, I guess, in the big picture of success, but, but had all these probably disastrous things going on, which uh, maybe uh, leads into what, what Kelly's going to say. Yeah, so Kelly Rudy uh, released this book uh, last spring, I believe, and it's called Calling the Shots. And here's what he has to say about that game against the Rangers. In the second period, it was getting dark and the rink lights came on. Suddenly, a swarm of locusts, each one about the size of a baby crow, came flying at us. Apparently, they were attracted to the ice because they thought it was water. Now, I don't want to sound like a baby here, but I hate those damn things. The way they jumped around with their buggy eyes and see-through wings and twitchy antennae. It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up just thinking about them. I was so completely freaked out. Now, he's a net at this point. Okay, so this is what he's describing. There are hundreds of these effing things all over the ice, landing and sticking. One of my serious concerns was that a puck might pick up one of these suckers on the way to the net. What if it were to shred apart and hit me in the face? Oh, my God. Remember that this was back in... Oh, this was back in 1991. Sorry. Um, so Tom Webster was still our coach. Webby told me at one point, Ty Domi had a breakaway, but had to stop because a locust flew in his mouth and he started <laughs> choking. I'm not sure I could have ever sh- shaken that off, ever. I love it. Yeah, it's it, I mean, the actual. I mean, normally you talk about the plague of locusts as like a metaphor, but it, this it actually happened in the NHL. And part of the story, I think, is also that not only were these things jumping on the ice, but they would jump on the ice that had just enough water, and then they would freeze. So they were stuck to the ice, and so there's players skating around just like with this crunchy sensation under their skates <laughs> as they're uh, skating over this uh, yeah the, this locust infestation. Yeah, is that is that in the all-time top five of uh, sports events with infestations? I always think of poor Jabba Chamberlain in that playoff game in Cleveland. Yeah, it with would. The mid- it would hopefully around. be up there between between <laughs> that and and bats coming on the ice and and live chickens being thrown at players. It's uh, uh, yeah, the NHL has has a bit of a mixed history with the animal kingdom. So as you can tell so far, and where we're going to close out, I know we've kept you for a long time, Ruta. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I I have one last question, and it's, I'm going to stay on the humor trail, and I want to ask you. I mean, with a, the NFL has the Super Bowl shuffle, you know, a song. Mm-hmm. Does does the NHL have an equivalent. I, before you answer, I want to I wanna just... Oh, well, hold on. Let me bring this up here. Uh, sorry to our sponsors here. No, I just want to find out if this is the equivalent. This is Leafs are the best, by the way. We're going to let it play out for a second. (laughs) 
So is that the is that the equivalent? You know what? That that's got to be right up there. A couple things on that. First of all, there is a video. Uh, Mike Myers is features in it. If you've never seen the video and you've just heard that music, the video is exactly as cheesy uh, and embarrassing as you would expect. That song was written by Glenn Anderson, by the way. He, Glenn Anderson was a member of that Leafs team, and he somehow convinced all of them. Uh, the, the, to to participate in this, even got Pat Burns briefly sort of involved. <laughs> uh, as far as being the Super Bowl shuffle, I feel like you got to give points for originality, and that was as as anyone who who reads my uh, my Friday column at the Athletic, where I, I break down the the YouTube clips. I have a bit of an obsession with terrible uh, lip synced hockey music videos, and and that one came out in the early '90s, but. There were ones before that. One of the first ones was the Calgary Flames uh, did the uh, the uh, you can't touch a flame when it's red hot, <laughs> and then that was followed by the Washington Capitals doing a whole series of them. There's like three or four terrible Washington Capitals where they would like go to Rod Langway's bar and patient zero in all this is Neil Sheehy because he played for the Flames, then went on to the uh, to the Capitals. He was the he actually has like a producing credit on some of these terrible wow. songs. Uh, and it's getting uh, residual and, right and, now. And you know he's 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 an agent these days. So, oh, but yeah. he I, I don't know if he advises his clients to sing these horrible songs. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, that 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 Leafs are the best might be the pinnacle of the art form. Uh, but I gotta say, I, I think the uh, I think the Flames being red hot might be the more direct ancestor to the Super Bowl shuffle. So like a subconscious reason why Neil Sheehy wore number zero. It could be. <laughs> That's what I say. He is literally patient zero of the. Uh, uh, the terrible music uh, um, movement in the NHL. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I'm cleaned out. I've cleaned out all my questions for, for Sean McIndoe today. Nate, do you have anything left for him? No, no. We really thank you so much, Sean, for uh, for coming in and, and gracing our you know humble podcast. The uh, book is The Down Goes Brown, History of the NHL from Random House Canada. This has been Sports Lit, Season 2, Episode 10, with Neil Acharya and Nate Sack. Sean. We're going to give you one last chance. Is there anything we haven't asked you that you want to share? No, you know what? I think you picked it all up, and I, I just I, I do hope people check the book out. Uh, consider it as a uh, Christmas gift option as well if you're like me and you'd like to just uh, knock off a big chunk of your Christmas shopping. You can go do that right now. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.